of Sportsnet today here on Sportsnet 960. The fans, Logan Gordon, along with you from our downtown studios in beautiful, sunny Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm with you for the next hour here on Sportsnet 960. The fan ahead of a 107 first pitch between the Jays and the Rays, which you can hear in its entirety here on Sportsnet 960. The fan bringing you a massive game in the AL East with a great pitching matchup. Shane McClanahan going for Tampa, who is 79 and 63 on the season. Will the Toronto Blue Jays send out Kevin Gosman, the right-hander, going for the 81 and 62 Toronto Blue Jays? This series has gone in Toronto's favor so far, uh, including Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hitting his 100th career home run last night in a win for the Jays. Look to finish this series off with a victory this afternoon. It's a busy program for you today. It's a busy day in the world of sports. We've got more PTOs across the NHL, including some news from an Alberta team when it comes to PTOs that we'll get to in a bit here. It's also Thursday night football between the Chargers and the Chiefs. Looking forward to that. And uh, some massive news out of the tennis world. And uh, luckily, we get to start with a guest that can talk about pretty much anything, including tennis. Uh, We go down the Alice Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline to welcome in our Thursday regular. It is Adnan Verk. Mr. Verk, happy Thursday, pal. How are you? Logan, I'm hanging in, but this is not the news you want to be getting as you're driving to a breakfast meeting. I see my phone blowing up saying a quizzically fed retiring, and then I see other messages, and I try not to look at my phone. I'm driving, but I'm guilty as many others are, and then, then there's the whole texting and driving where I should be in a ditch. So I, I was like, God, I wish, wish when I got this news, I could have just been by myself and bald in a corner. But unfortunately, I had to uh, ignore my phone, get to the meeting, the guy I was meeting doesn't know what a huge Federer fan I am. I think he knows I'm a tennis fan, so yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to start crying in front of him. So I had to <laughs> had to hold in my emotions, get through the meeting, and then I could finally ball my eyes out. But yeah, it's it's tough news, man. I I, um, I don't want to say I'm not shocked, but I am a little surprised because I, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to try to to give it a go and still keep going um, all along. I must give credit to Rash Badani, Sportsnet's own, because when Federer first announced he was going to play the Labor Cup. Arash said publicly, because I think this is going to be Federer's farewell. You know, he's from obviously Basel and has great love for Rod Laver. And he goes, I think, I think this is it. And I said, no, 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 Arash, you're an idiot. He's going to use this tournament as a springboard for his comeback because of how much he loves Labor. He'll play with other guys. He'll give it a little bit of time. He'll come back one more year. He's going to do one more tour of the battlefield. He will skip uh, the French Open. He'll play the Aussie. He'll play Wimbledon. I don't even know if he'll play the U.S. Open for sure, but he's definitely playing Wimbledon one last time. It's his court. It's his cathedral, et cetera. So when I saw the news, I said, all right, well, hey, Madani was right. And two, um, here's one of the reasons that I love Federer so much. I think if you're not in it to win it, he doesn't want to bother. Mm-hmm. And I think he had to look inside himself and say, okay, unless I think I'm going to win tournaments, then I don't want to bother. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with still wanting to play for love of the game. There's many athletes you and I know, I think especially in hockey, Zidane Chara, Chris Chelios, these guys were no longer the stars they once were, but they still just love playing hockey. And if that's 16 and 17 minutes playing on the third defense pair, then I'm all for it. But there's guys like Federer, who I love and appreciate, who say, if I'm not the absolute best, if I don't think I can beat Djokovic and Nadal and Alcaraz and Pass and Medvedev and all these young guys, then, then I'm good. I had a great run. And he also, I think, focuses on the important things in life, which is health. He had three knee surgeries. Like he has said before, I don't want to be that guy who was like a cripple walking around the streets. Like, oh, when my body tells me it's over, it's over. And he clearly worked hard and diligently coming back from surgeries. And if he knows his body better than anybody, 
and feels now's the time to step away, then that makes the most sense. And he's got a beautiful family. His wife, Mirka, you always see all the tournaments. He's got four great kids, two sets of twins. He makes $100 million a year just on endorsements. So he has had an incredible life. I am just saddened personally because now I can admit my plan, as you know, I have many children, but my plan, as I confessed to my wife recently, was we should go to London next year because my youngest guy, Maz, is three. He's turning four in a couple months. So prior to that, I said, we can't travel. He's too small. And, of course, my other kids were too small. But now with the boys, it'll be by next year, 14, 11, six, and four. So I said, you know, it's not going to be an easy trip across the pond, but we can do it. I have a lot of family in England. You guys go do your thing. It's just one day. I got to go see Federer. I'll get a first round ticket. I got my buddy Steve Weissman at Tennis Channel. I'll John Worth. I got enough connections. I can get in there. And after that, it was like a nice European vacation. A lot of my mom's family's in England. Oh, here we go. So I had many conflicting thoughts today, one of which, so much for my European vacation. I swear, Logan. I had, and my wife agreed. She's like, oh, my God, I convinced her we're going to be good. I'm going to see the great. I've never been to Wimbledon, the cathedral yeah. that is Wimbledon. I'll see Federer. And I said, damn, there goes that plan, along with many other plans. But I, I try to focus on the positive. He's one of my favorite athletes of all time. He has given me so many rich memories and so many moments of joy. I will never forget 2017. I woke up without an alarm clock, which is impressive when I tell you it was for the Australian Open at 3.30 a.m. Coverage begins at 3, but a veteran like me knows they don't start hitting the ball until 3.30. I'll never forget. I woke up. I just looked at the alarm clock. It was 3.38. I'm like, wow, I am good. I am hyped up for this one. Went downstairs. It was Federer Nadal final. And it was one of the great finals ever. And to me, it was one of the best stories ever. I said this on ESPN, and Tom Rinaldi almost laughed because he's a big tennis guy. He's a bigger Nadal guy. But he was, I said, it's the best story of the year. And he, and he started laughing. I said, Federer's been given up for dead. Like his career, 03, 04, he was bananas, right? Winning three slams a year. Mm-hmm. 01 when he beat Sampras. By 17, you know, the greatest match he ever played, you and I both know, was at Wimbledon. Yes. And that was 2008 when Rafa beat him. And at that time, everyone said, this is it. Like, you know, Roger's done. It's been a good run. It's over. And then next year he had what I think is one of his best wins. He beat Roddick in an epic Wimbledon. But the best one for me, I keep thinking about today when people say, what's the memory you cherish? It was 2017 because he came back and he beat Rafa and it was in, it was just a great match. I mean, if you look at the numbers right now, it was like six, three, six, four, like it wasn't like crazy tie breaks, but high quality, high level tennis. And I'll never forget if you YouTube it, the last shot, they did it to review because Rafa challenged it, and then it was good, and then Roger gave a big jump up, and Fowler's like, he's done it! And it, it was amazing. I, I couldn't believe that after all this talk of Rafa's dethroned him and Rafa's better, the fact that Roger beat him in a major at that advantage, he was 36 years old, for God's sake. It was amazing. So I'm trying to focus on the positives today, and uh, I'll go back and go down the YouTube hole and make myself feel better. But it's, um, I applaud him for going out on his own terms. That's the good news. You know, I've been lucky enough to uh, to be part of these chats with you for, for a while now. It feels like it's been a very long time, whether I was, you know, running the board and producing for, for Pat or for other shows and, you know, lucky enough to, you know, evolve to have these chats with you on, on my own. But I don't know if I've ever asked you or heard someone ask you why Federer was held in such regard for you, Ed. And I don't know if I've ever, if we've ever gone down the rabbit hole as to why Roger Federer was the guy for you. It's a great question. You're right. Nobody ever has asked me. Everyone just always knows what a Federer fan I am. And everybody's quick to make jokes about how much, you know, mourning I am today, which I do appreciate. You know, people have tweeted saying, you're the first person I thought of when I heard Roger Federer was retiring. But it is a great question. It goes back to multiple levels. You know, my mom instilled in me a love of tennis. As I mentioned, she grew up in England, so she really gave me a great love of Wimbledon. We'd watch it together. And 
I love Becker as a kid. He was my favorite growing up in the 80s. And he was 17 years old in 85 when I was seven years old. And I'm like, who is this guy? Flying all over the court. So I particularly love that tournament. And I played tennis as a kid. Not very well. I still play. Not very well. As I like to say, I'm at an intermediate level. I'm not a beginner. I'm not a pro. I'm at the intermediate level of just hitting a ball over a net, liking to run around. But I think the reason why I fell in love with Roger Federer and his tennis was just the beauty of which he played. And my friend Patrick Guthrie tweeted today, who is an excellent tennis player. We play on occasion. He whips me six love. He played in college. He tweeted, and it was perfect the way he said it. He said, you can debate who the greatest is of all time, but nobody has ever looked better doing it than Roger Federer. And I think that's the essence of Federer's greatness. That, you know, there's an incredible article by David Foster Wallace. I encourage everyone to read it. It's called Federer as Religious Experience. Like, you, you don't write that about athletes unless it's someone like Federer. And the article, he explained how he evokes a real passion and a real loyalty in the fandom. And it's because of the way in which he plays. It's the grace. It's the brilliance. It's the creativity. It's the shot making. It's the class. And it's the elegance. And those are all words that you don't necessarily typify in sports, but Federer really combined them all. And it's amazing to think about. With Nadal, he's just a bull in a china shop, right? Sleeves cut off and bulging biceps and grunting his way to victory. You know, Djokovic with that crazy hair, you know, like a porcupine, but a great counterpuncher, obviously amazing, getting to every shot. But with Federer, he was so beautiful to watch because he never looked like he was breaking a sweat. Like he could, he could play for hours, and he just looked so cool. I believe my boss, John Skipper, once said he was like James Bond out there. I said, yeah, there was never a moment that you felt like James Bond was in trouble. So I just loved the way in which he played. There's a real beauty to his grace. Um, I think if you try to draw a comparison today on MLB Network, we're running a special on Roberto Clemente. If you talk about Clemente, the people that knew him said he played with such a passion and grace. One of the best books I've ever read by David Marinus, by the way. It's called Clemente, the Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero. Um, you know, I think in hockey, if you thought of maybe Jean Beliveau, right, of the grace and elegance with which he played. You know, those are, to me, characteristics you don't necessarily think of in sports. But Federer really exemplified that, which was beautiful to see. Is that the is Roger part of the golden age of, of men's tennis? Do you think that are we going to look back at, you know, him and, and Adal and Djokovic and think that's that's as good as it ever was to have three guys of that caliber go back and forth and and develop these rivalries for years. We're going to look back at that and say, man, were we ever lucky to see those three guys do it when they were at their best and, and have this back and forth of who's number one for you know this, this season and who's number one for, for most consecutive weeks? Yeah, it really was remarkable. You know, I never like to think you can just say that they're the best ever, just rank them one, two, three, because to me, you have to look at players from different eras and, you know, the problem with today is everyone just adds up the most majors and thinks that's the best player, and that's not the way it works. You know, in golf, you know, Jack Nicklaus made the most majors, and some do think he's the best, but some think Tiger Woods is the best. And some might argue Arnold Palmer is the best. You can make a case for all of them. Um, Sam Snead has more PGA Tour victories than others, et cetera. So in tennis, you know, Rod Laver, when he was playing, they didn't have as many majors. The Australian Open wasn't considered a major. He also played in different ranks, college, et cetera. So if you ask any like, true tennis fan, let's say Rod Laver is one of the top three players of all time. Um, of course, you and I grew up in a different era, but if you, a little bit earlier it was Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi and their incredible rivalry. So I've always found it tough with this generation because I think a lot of people feel like it just goes, you know, the top three in whatever order you pick, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. But I almost think like it's hard because you have to look at different eras and try to include other tennis players. Having said all of that, 
I do agree with you. It is the golden age of men's tennis because to have three players with 20 or more majors is just insane. Again, going to the fact that there wasn't as many majors previously, so those numbers are inflated by time. And as L. John Wertheim, the great tennis writer for Sports Social, has pointed out, Djokovic and Nadal had the benefit because they were behind Federer. So they could really kind of train themselves and just focus on the majors. You know, guys of a certain era before, they just played all the time. Like Macaron will tell you, we didn't necessarily care just about the majors. We wanted to be number one. We wanted tour money. We cared about Davis Cup. Today, all these guys care about is the majors. So you can literally plan your schedule to just win those majors, and that's it. So, you know, John really made that point that Jokers and Nadal were luckier because they could just focus on Roger and target those slams. But it really does feel like a golden age, man. I think if we go back and watch those matches, I mean, McEnroe-Bjorg is one of the great matches of all time, and maybe it's just a benefit of time. But if you watch Federer-Nadal, that Wimbledon 08, it was insane. And, and I also think for Federer, you know, 20 majors, but he could have had 25. There was a lot of close calls that were incredibly painful, uh, in which he lost at Del Potro. He lost to um, Songa. The one against Djokovic just breaks my heart from a couple of years ago. Wimbledon, he was, I believe it was set point, if I were match point, if I'm not mistaken. I think he had two match points. And Djokovic fought both of them off, ended up winning the match. And it was like, that was, that was Roger's last best chance to win a slam. And you felt it in that moment. Like, I kept wanting to tell myself, no, he'll be back. But you, you really could feel like, now that was it. Like he, he had a chance at the eighth Wimbledon and now it's gone. So it's interesting to think about with these great players. And I think that's the way that all the great athletes are wired. Like um, I'll never forget Gretzky was interviewed by the director, Peter Berg in the great 30 for 30 Gretzky's tears. And Peter Berg said, after you were traded from Edmonton, you never won another Stanley cup. You ever think about that? And without hesitation, Gretzky said every day. <laughs> that's amazing. He's the greatest player of all time. And yet there's this element of sadness, nostalgia, mournfulness. All these great athletes go, man, I wish I could have won a little bit more, even though they're the best ever. It's amazing. And now him and Serena in the same summer, it's a, it's a changing of the guard for tennis to have two of the, the goats of tennis walk out at the same time. Yeah, it is true, man. I hadn't really thought about Logan, so you brought that up. But I, I remember... I mean, it was just a week ago now watching Serena thinking this really is the passage of time. You know, who is going to be the next big one? And, you know, we hope that it's somebody who is as charismatic, electrifying, and as controversial as Serena. Let's face it. She definitely had her moments of, of anger and ill will, but it definitely courted controversy and definitely drove headlines. And there's a lot more supporters and admirers than there are detractors. But her and Federer will definitely be inseparable. In this era of the last two decades of tennis, you'll think of those two players more than anything dominating their game. And one of the reasons and one of the real ways that you can point to their greatness is the influence of each. Again, if you're going to go just by majors, then you're not going to have an argument. You're going to say either Djokovic or Nadal is the greatest of all time or Margaret Court is the greatest of all time. She has 24 Grand Slam victories. And she came in a couple of weeks ago and said, I respect Serena, but she doesn't respect me. She's like, I won more majors than her. By the way, I won majors after I had kids. She didn't. I played in an era where majors were not viewed the same as her. I didn't have the benefit of jets and personal travel and nannies. Like, I was literally raising my kids and then going out there and playing tennis. But everyone seems to think she's the greatest of all time. Well, whatever. I'm pretty good, too. And I think if you're a Federer fan, you will argue, fine, Djokovic and Nadal have more majors. Nadal, you can discount by saying so many of those are on clay in the French Open. Like, he's the most dominant player ever on one surface. But the French Open is not viewed, I think, by tennis purists the same way as Wimbledon or the U.S. Open is. And for Djokovic, there's no doubt you can argue he's the best. But, again, if you want to go just on majors, you got it. 
But if you want to talk about influence on the game, inspiring others to play tennis, the grace and elegance and class with which you carry yourself, well, then that's why Federer's in the conversation. Because you can say that Djokovic you can appreciate, but Federer you truly love. Like, people literally embrace the sport. They picked up a racket for the first time in years after watching him say, man, I want to do what that guy does. And they follow him around on a different level than others. And you can't put a value on that. You, you literally can't quantify the love and adoration people have for a player of a certain type. Again, I'll try to make it into hockey. You know, Gretzky's the best ever by the numbers. But if you look at Mr. Hockey, it's Gordie Howe because of longevity. And then there's people who argue Bobby Orr did things no one had ever done before. So, again, you can have these conversations in every sport. And I think for Serena, you can certainly argue she's the best ever. And I think for Roger, you can still make a case. Chatting with our pal uh, Adnan Verk from the MLB Network, NHL Network, and, of course, the Cinephile Podcast. Uh, had to start things off, of course, on the uh, pending retirement uh, of Roger Federer, one of the greats of tennis, said to call it a career. Uh, Adnan, let's uh, talk about some football with you. we got uh, week two of the NFL season kicking off tonight with a great AFC West match between the Chargers and the Chiefs. Uh, I will go there with you in just a moment, but uh, since I haven't had a chance to talk with you uh, since it happened, how about that Monday nighter between the Seahawks and the Broncos? First of all, Russell Wilson getting a feel of what it's like to be an opposing quarterback in Seattle, and then the madness that is Nathaniel Hackett taking the ball out of his hands with a minute left to go and them needing a first down. Pretty baffling. I, I was watching the Emmys because I had to do Cinephile the next day. And I, I, in the past, you can kind of like flip and watch a few categories and go away. But after Chris Rock and Will Smith, I feel like I can't miss anything just in case something wacky happens at an award show. But of course, I was following along on Twitter what was happening. And I was able to flip over because Succession won the best drama Emmy. And I flipped over and the game was just ending. And I, like everybody else, was in disbelief. You pay all this money for Russell Wilson, and then he can't hack it because you give it to a 64-yard field goal. I, I know it's a different era kickers, Logan. I know guys can hit 50 the way they used to hit 40. Maybe they can hit 60 the way they used to hit 50. You know, 40 is a new 30, and I get all that. But, man, I, I just don't understand having Russell Wilson and settling for a 64-yard field goal. Credit to Wilson. He was not critical publicly. Perhaps he was privately, but you got to tow the company line. I was happy for Seattle. They're not going to be a good football team this year, but they've got an incredible fan base. This was probably their Super Bowl. They got to beat Russell Wilson in his return, and they're going to have a four- or five-win season in all likelihood. And for the Broncos, definitely a rude awakening for Wilson and company. they got work to do. I think we all feel like, at least on paper, they're going to be a Super Bowl contender, but only 16 points against that Seattle defense. Maybe it's just that they know Wilson so well. But to settle for a 64-yarder, just a, just a baffling decision. Uh, in tonight's matchup, uh, speaking of the AFC West, what a great one. Herbert and Mahomes on, on Thursday night football. As a, I'm obviously an unabashed Chargers fan, and I'm excited for tonight. But uh, from just a general football perspective, the idea of these two guys going head-to-head twice a year and then maybe in the playoffs for the next 10 years is certainly an exciting prospect. These guys are at the top of their game when it comes to quarterbacks. No doubt about it. I mean, Herbert's unreal. I mean, uh, obviously, you know that as a Chargers fan. Me and Michael Lombardi have talked about it on the GM Shuffle. Just some of the plays that he's able to make are just incredible. And it's, it's why you feel like the sky's the limit, although it's just such a tough division. You just don't know, you know, who, who necessarily is going to be the odd person out. And against the Chiefs, it's just such a hard challenge because Mahomes, you say no Tyreek Hill, no problem. The guy completely balled out, you know, 400 plus yards passing, five touchdowns. So uh, excited, obviously, as a TV geek, just to see. Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet together. Uh, that's going to be interesting on Amazon. Just a new format. I'll be doing baseball tonight, but I'll keep an eye on it just to check the game 
And like you said, with those kind of quarterbacks, I expect you'll get pretty good ratings. Although that's a big talk now, right? For streaming, it's only going to be two million versus, you know, on regular uh, television, it's eight million or nine million. What does that mm. mean? But I, I think people will figure it out. There's such an appetite for football. I know the one concern people say about going to the bar. Like, normally you just go to the bar to watch the game. Are they going to have streaming capabilities? So I, I hope everybody figures this out. But ultimately, get to where you need to stream and watch the game on Amazon. It should be a hell of a game. Yeah, I, I'm, you know what? I'm curious, actually, on on that topic with you, Adnan, as someone that consumes, you know, sports as much as you do and in other things like, you know, how where do you come out on all of this streaming stuff? Because I feel like a lot of people that it's getting a bit too much. I don't need to have... You know, I can't have six or seven different streaming apps, you know, because I want to watch, you know, House of Dragons, but I also want to watch, you know, Lord, new Lord of the Rings series. But hey, now I need this because I need to catch Thursday night football. Are you one of the guys that's, you know, hey, it's becoming a little bit too much with all of this? Big time. I'm definitely an old man on this. I still love cable. I have direct TV. Uh, I had to check my bill a couple months ago and was appalled that it was over $200. I took it. It's nuts. And I called them and I threatened to cancel. And thankfully, they, they figured things out. I'm down down to $154 a month. And my wife argues. She goes, you know, it's just for you. Like, the kids can just watch kids' shows on Netflix. We've got Disney Plus to entertain them. You know, she watches shows on Hulu. And she borrows her, whatever, friend's Amazon account. She goes, you're the one. I go, well, listen, I just like watching sports on DirecTV. I like being able to flip around. I never been watching just one sporting event. I'm always watching a couple of things. In commercial breaks, I flip around. So the issue for me with streaming is I don't like the fact that hey, you, you put it up there and then you can't flip around. And then sometimes there's a buffering issue. It takes a few minutes to get buffered. And then once you're in, you're in, but sometimes there's glitches and stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm, I know how to do it. I'm not the old man that I don't know how to do it. Trust me, I, I, I have streaming capabilities on all my devices. I know how to do it, but I do get annoyed. I, I, I get frustrated by it. I like the idea of, of conventional television, and I always laugh about those who think, well, everything's going streaming. I'm like, well, not tomorrow. Like, the last time I checked, the NFL signed massive deals with CBS, with Fox, with ESPN. Those are all what we call linear networks, you know, classic television models. And I think the contracts for, if not seven years, like 10 years. So cable's not going anywhere for the next decade. Does that mean more and more people will be streaming? Of course. Does that mean more people will cut cable and will watch Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon? I got it. Of course. That's the way it's going. But just because one medium comes on vogue, the other one doesn't disappear. And I agree with my boss, Noah Garden, with MLB Network, who said to me, you know, when television came about, radio didn't die. It just changed. So I always still think that cable TV will exist, and maybe it will just be for people who are 50-plus. But not everything will be streaming forever. It's going to take longer than people think. Uh, switching to baseball, a couple minutes left with uh, Adnan Verk. The big talk here, uh, of course, as we cover as much Toronto Blue Jays as we do, is in their recent hot streak. But uh, the big topic after yesterday was Vladdy hitting home run number 100 uh, at just the age of 23. Now, his dad did it at the age of 25, but did it in less games. Uh, what do you make of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. from the outside looking in, Adnan? Because there's been a lot of talk this year of, you know, hey, he's not doing what he did last year. But I think you still look at the numbers and think, this guy's just 23 years old. The expectation level is just so high for him. I think so, too. I mean, he had a remarkable season a year ago to be the kind of guy who was competing for an MVP all year after a couple of decent seasons. I wouldn't say disappointing, but decent. Maybe maybe a little underwhelming just because expectations were so high. He was the number one prospect in all the baseball conversations about his weight, et cetera. The way he played last year was incredible. It showed why he's going to be a cornerstone of your franchise and is going to get, who knows, a 10-year, $300 million contract like Manny Machado when it's all said and done. 
But I'm with you. I think this year he's been he's been good to very good. You know, I, I don't think he's a disappointment. He just hasn't been as great as he was a year ago. But you know, that happens ultimately he's still a very good hitter. He's had big moments and the fact he had a hundred home runs at the age of twenty three, eclipsing the previous record set by Carlos Delgado, who was twenty six. That speaks volumes about just how talented Vlad Jr. is so early in his career. And I think sometimes there's a lot of expectations thrust upon someone. It takes time to develop, which is why it took him a couple of years. Maybe next year he has a year like he had a year ago. But this year he's still, like I said, a very good hitter. And, and being ably supported by Boba Shedd has just been bananas in September. Is the talk of baseball right now simply about this Mets-Braves battle for first in the NL East as we wind September down. What a disappointing outcome for the Mets to get swept by the Cubs. Yeah, I mean, that's horrible. I love my buddy David Ross, which we've worked together for years. ESPN is one of my all-time favorite people. And good for the Cubs. You know, they did not trade a few of the guys everyone thought that they would trade uh, in Contreras specifically or Ian Happ. And they've actually been pretty feisty down the stretch. But, you know, the Mets coming into yesterday, they've lost six of ten games against teams like the Cubs and the Pirates and you're thinking to yourself, wow, what's going on with this team? So it, it's incredibly frustrating for New York because they've got a dogfight on their hands. Like the Braves have played over 714 winning percentage since like May 1st. It's ridiculous. They're winning at least two out of every three games. So Atlanta's not going away. And imagine the frustration for the Mets. They were in first place from April 12th to September 8th. They relinquished it for a day to Atlanta and then rested it back. But again, you're going down the wire and you can ill afford to all of a sudden become a wild card team. You want to be able to get that by in that first round. Clearly the best team is the Dodgers. The second best team is either the Mets or the Braves. So I think it's so vital down the stretch. They've got to get Scherzer back and hope he's healthy. No more issues with the obliques on the left side and, and play some better baseball against bad teams like the Cubs. Uh, last couple minutes for you, Adnan. Uh, latest edition of the Cinephile podcast came out yesterday. Uh, it was a great one as always. Uh, but for anybody curious, where did you come down on the Emmys? Are you still an Emmys guy? Yeah, I did enjoy it. I thought, you know, in today's age, I think everyone kind of craps on everything, so I, I like to try to find the positives in award shows. Um, what, what was disappointing was it was all chalk, but the good news is the chalk that I agree with, I was happy with. Succession won Best Drama. You know, they won for Best Writing. They won for Best Supporting Actor. I'm thrilled with all those. Um, but the disappointment to me is Better Call Saul, the fact that going in, they were 0 for 46 and still can't get enough love for those major categories. Ray Seahorn should have won for Supporting Actress. Would have liked Odenkirk to win for Best Actor, so that's frustrating for me. As far as the show itself from NBC, I thought they did a good job with it, trying to add music, a live DJ. Keenan Thompson, to me, is pretty funny. I just think some of the bits don't work. I didn't care for the bit off the top. The, you know, the one they did with Kamel Nanjiani as the bartender, and then Sudeikis was involved. Like, just trim the fat on that stuff, because they end up really shortening the winner's speeches, and then they get screwed. The whole point of watching is you want to see who wins. You want to see the winners. You want to see the speeches, memorable moments, clips of shows. You can lose, to me, you kind of trim the fat, so to speak. I like Keenan, like I said, as a host. His monologue was funny. A couple of good jokes at, uh, you know, DiCaprio, Netflix going broke, that kind of stuff. But they could have tightened it up, I think, in other areas and allowed it to breathe in other areas. But overall, it was a good show. I enjoyed it. Uh, anything on the, uh, the movie watch right now for you coming out? Any fall releases you got your eye on? Yeah, it's a good weekend this weekend. There's like a few movies opening up. So I'm looking forward to seeing, see how they run. New Sam Rockwell movie. It looks like a throwback there, period piece. Kind of like a fun little, uh, you know, detective type caper type movie. So, uh, the Woman King people are talking about as well. Viola Davis and that's getting a lot of buzz right now. So, it'll be a good weekend for movies now. Now, now with the fall movies coming, we can stop messing around and finally get to some good quality plays. Looking forward to it, and then always appreciate the time, man. Take care. Try to uh, remember the good times of Roger and not the bad times. Uh, you'll make it through this all right, okay? 
This felt like a therapy session. Let me know how much I need to pay you. Sportsnet Today. Listen on the air, online, on the Sportsnet app, and always on your smart speaker. Sportsnet 960, The Fan, Calgary. You are innocence personified, and I will drag you down. Welcome back to an early edition of Sportsnet Today here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. It's Logan Gordon along with you. We're about 30 minutes out from first pitch at Rogers Center between the Jays and the Rays. Shane McClanahan getting the start for the Rays. Kevin Gosman, the righty going for Toronto, will bring you full coverage of that game here on Sportsnet 960. The fan, after the game finishes up, Pat Steinberg going to take you through a couple hours of Flames talk on this Thursday night. Uh, But while we're with you for the rest of the segment, catch up on some stories from around the sports world. Uh, Thursday night football, we'll chat in just a couple of moments. Chargers and the Chiefs coming up. Uh, tonight, the first edition of Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, talked with Adnan Verk about this a bit in the first segment. Uh, this is an interesting experiment for the NFL to take Thursday nights onto a streaming service. I'll be very curious as to what the numbers look like from this from a broadcast um, point of view. Um, I, I'll be honest, I don't know the numbers or the success of Prime Video as a whole in the streaming service world, is it uh, at the level of a Disney Plus or a Netflix? I, I don't know how many people that are using it are using it to turn in uh, to football on a Thursday or how many people have gone out to get it so they can watch Thursday night football. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe if you're a guy that you know likes to spend your Thursdays or your Mondays going to uh, a bar with some buddies to watch the game, are you doing an extra take to make sure that your local establishment is going to have the game tonight. It's a, it's a new era for the NFL tonight, and uh, we'll be curious to see how it affects their, their viewership numbers from a, a money standpoint. They're, they're going to be raking in the money because Amazon, ESPN, you know, Fox, CBS, all these, all these different entities that want to broadcast the NFL are going to pay for it, but will they get the numbers they're hoping for? The NFL certainly done them a favor it's a great matchup on a Thursday night. The Chargers and the Chiefs is a fantastic matchup in the AFC West. Both teams coming off of week one victories. Both teams with fantastic quarterbacks uh, right in their prime. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes has a Super Bowl title. He's got an NFL title, an NFL MVP title, excuse me, already as well. And, you know, Justin Herbert and the Chargers look like uh, they're a team that's going to be you know much harder to to knock out this year maybe than last year after the improvements they made on defense and they have the most important piece uh, of all the teams are always searching for it appears in year three Justin Herbert is just ready to continue to build off of what's already been a very successful start to his NFL career just two years in uh, speaking of the Chargers and the Chiefs uh, the morning show Uh, Big show in the morning with uh, Danny Austin and Matt Rose uh, did a little bit of a Thursday night preview for you, bringing in a couple of writers uh, covering teams on both sides of this one. We got the Chiefs and the Chargers here. Let's start with the key uh, with the Chiefs here. Blair Kirkhoff uh, talking about this new look Chiefs offense. It's a very interesting mix for Kansas City. Uh, where everyone else in the AFC West was kind of loading up with talent and big weapons. 
they might have let the, their biggest weapon go, and that's trading Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. But if week one was any indication, it doesn't seem to matter as long as you've got Patrick Mahomes playing at a high level. Here's Blair Kirkhoff from the Big Show in the Morning today sort of talking about what some of those new-look weapons look like for Patrick Mahomes and how so far it's been a success for the Kansas City Chiefs. So that's right. In addition to you know, Tyreek Hill, they lost Byron Kringle and Demarcus Robinson. And you know, those three guys combined for a lot of completions for Patrick Mahomes over the last few years. Hill especially, of course, led the team in receptions last year. But um, you know, the first test, and we saw it in preseason games, but the very first test in a regular season game, it was as if uh, nothing had changed. The Chiefs rolled up a ton of yards offensively and, uh, and, and, and in the passing game. They're not going to have – there is no other Tyreek Hill in the NFL. He is such a unique talent. and It can't be replaced. It can't be duplicated. So what, I think what that has done is it's allowed Andy Reid and the Chiefs to, you know, to stretch their imagination a little bit. And how, do, how can you have an offense as effective in the post-Tyreek Hill era you know, without his speed and uh, his agility? And um, I think you're going to see some different things like you know, uh, taking advantage of a good offensive line to establish the run and using several tight ends, uh, 12 and 13 personnel that their biggest play last week was a 35 yard pass to Travis Kelsey. And they had uh, three tight ends on the field for that play. So um, I, I just think uh, Andy Reid already a creative mind when it, when it comes to play calling and creating offense is going to be even more imaginative this year. So it sounds as though, despite losing Tyreek Hill, that the Kansas City Chiefs have positioned themselves to maintain their status as one of the most dominant NFL offenses. That was Blair Kirkhoff. He writes about the Chiefs for the Kansas City Star. And look, it's a very interesting approach, and it's one that you have to get creative with when you have an MVP caliber quarterback. It's hard to pay everybody. You want to have a good offensive line to protect that quarterback. That costs you money. You've got a high-end weapon in Travis Kelsey. That costs you money. Sometimes you have to find a way to maximize the talent around your team when you're paying all these guys. Uh, the way that the Kansas City Chiefs have gone about that, move out a guy like Tyreek Hill who's ready to get paid is obviously a great talent. There's, there's no denying that. You can't, as Blair said, you can't replace what Tyreek Hill is. But can you, in the aggregate, replace him? Juju Smith-Schuster comes in not you know getting this kind of paycheck that Tyreek Hill is, and you go out, use one of your first-round picks to bring in Sky Moore. There's a first-round receiver ready to jump into your offense. So there you're talking about Juju not making as much money. Sky Moore comes in on that rookie contract for a couple of years. That helps keep that money available for Patrick Mahomes, for the offensive line, and for all the important pieces that you're going to need on defense. I think this Chiefs team is still as poised to be offensively dangerous, maybe without the, the big name in Tyreek Hill, but I think with all the names that, that Blair mentioned there, they're going to be a very tough group to stop again this season. On the other side for the Chargers, uh, their main offensive weapon is Keenan Allen. He didn't play much in week one. In the second quarter, he left with a hamstring injury. The good news for the Chargers, it doesn't sound as though it's a long-term thing, but the bad news is this is a short week with them playing on Sunday and now on Thursday night. So not enough time for Keenan Allen to get back into the lineup for the Chargers tonight. Joe Reedy, who covers the Chargers, spoke to the guys on the big show in the morning today as well. 
talking about who is going to step up in the absence of Keenan Allen tonight for the Chargers. Yeah, Josh Palmer will get the start, but I think we'll also see more of DeAndre Carter, too. Um, I would expect Michael Bandy, who uh, led to AFC in receptions during during the preseason, but was uh, one of the final roster cuts to uh, possibly get moved up from moved up from the practice squad. This team keeps only five wide receivers on the roster, so when one isn't playing. You, you've got to elevate one from. You've got to elevate one from the practice squad. I think that um, we'll see, we'll see in the three wide receiver sets, especially we'll we'll see both Palmer and Carter out there. Uh, Jalen Guyton, possibly too, who's a deep threat, was only targeted once last week. But I think the one thing that the Chargers showed that. Even with Allen Hurt, Justin Herbert's able to distribute the ball to a lot of people. He had completions to nine different players, uh, five guys with three catches or more. And, you know, a guy like Gerald Everett, too, the uh, tight end, what he could do with uh, yards after the catch will be a, will be an interesting matchup problem as well. Austin Eckler kind of struggled in the Raiders game, but he's had some big games against the Chargers in the past, and I think they'll they'll look at him, too, to uh, catch the ball out of the backfield. That's Joe Reedy. He covers the L.A. Chargers uh, for the Associated Press. Uh, both of those conversations from the big show in the morning can be found wherever you get your podcasts uh, with Matt Rose and Danny Austin earlier today. The Chargers situation is an interesting one because they come off a big week one victory against the Chiefs where most, or excuse me, against the Raiders, uh, where most people were talking about their defensive dominance. Khalil Mack, one of their big offseason additions, has three sacks, a forced fumble, six tackles, and was really, you know, the biggest force for them defensively helping to take down Derek Carr and the Raiders in week one. But offensively, things hummed along pretty well for the Chargers. Justin Herbert, Looked like the Justin Herbert we've seen the first two years. Uh, very good arm strength, extremely accurate, able to find time in the pocket around what's a very improved offensive line for the Chargers. I don't know how many people watching football today understand how much importance the Chargers have put on protecting pa- uh, Justin Herbert in this. Obviously, Rashawn Slater was an all-pro last year. In his first year, they spent a first-round pick on him. They did it again this year, signing, uh, uh, drafting Zion Johnson from Boston College as uh, their starting right guard. So back-to-back years now, the Chargers have spent high draft capital in protecting Justin Herbert. They got Matt Filer, their left guard from the Steelers, Corey Lindsley, who I think is the best center in the NFL today. Uh, after years with Aaron Rodgers, is now the guy in front of Justin Herbert calling out uh, defenses and helping him with his reads. That's an extremely important part of this. If you know your biggest asset is Justin Herbert and what he can do, protecting him is a massive part of this. But can the Chargers find a way to be as offensively capable without Keenan Allen? It's going to be a big challenge against this Chiefs defense. On the other side of the ball for the Chargers, Interestingly enough, it seems as though their uh, other big defensive acquisition, that's J.C. Jackson, the cornerback, formerly of the New England Patriots, 
is set to make his Chargers debut tonight, according to an Instagram post that he put out uh, about an hour ago on social media. He missed week one, uh, having a bone removed from his ankle. Uh, It was about a two- to four-week recovery. He's rated about three and a half weeks for this. So we'll see. Uh, It sounds as though he plans to be out there tonight, and that could be the piece that this Chargers defense has been waiting for. Asante Samuel Jr. had his ups and downs against Devontae Adams last week against the Raiders. But J.C. Jackson, really the guy that the Chargers are keying on to be that shutdown threat for them on defense. Chargers and Chiefs kick things off tonight. Week two of NFL action gets going. Remember, this game only available on Amazon Prime. Should be a good one. Herbert taking on Mahomes. That's the football story. Quick uh, hawking update today. Uh, More PTOs being handed out across the league as training camps are a couple of weeks away. Uh, We heard up the road in Edmonton yesterday reports that the Calgary Flames may be interested in Jake Vertanen, the former Canucks forward, on a PTO. Nothing official there. All that we've really heard now from Edmonton, uh, Daniel Nugent Bowman and a couple of other people, including Mark Spector, have said that the Oilers who were in on Vertanen have sort of passed that up now. They're looking in another direction, so don't expect Vertanen to be in Edmonton for training camp. Does that mean he's coming to Calgary? Not sure. Haven't heard anything on that front. Uh, But interestingly enough, now that the Oilers have moved on from Vertanen, the name that's coming up around Oilers camp as to a potential PTO is now former flame Brett Ritchie. Uh, Apparently the Oilers currently mulling over a PTO offer for the former Flames 13th forward. So we'll see what happens with that one. Speaking of former Flames, if you missed it yesterday, Alex Chason, the right winger, he signs a PTO with the Arizona Coyotes. The last two times that Chason has been on a PTO, I believe the first one was with Washington a couple of years back and then with Edmonton a few seasons ago as well. Uh, Both times that he has gone into those organizations on a PTO, he's walked out with a contract. Given the state of things in Arizona, I would say he's probably pretty favorable to pick up another contract, we'll say. Uh, We'll see what that happens in training camp or not. Uh, Victor Rask, he has signed a PTO with the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, so he'll be joining them in training camp as well. And uh, Oh, I did want to mention this as well. The Oilers, not just the news on Richie, they did uh, sign uh, Jason Demers. Longtime uh, NHL defenseman, now at 34 years old. He has signed uh, a PTO. He will be with the Oilers in training camp looking to crack that roster. So that's the latest around the NHL today. Uh, What are we focused on here in uh, Calgary on Sportsnet today? Uh, We're just about 20 minutes or so away from Blue Jays baseball kicking off. Jays and Rays here on Sportsnet 960 will bring you the game in its entirety. Uh, Great pitching matchup. I mentioned this before. Shane McClanahan going for Tampa. Kevin Gosman going for Toronto as they look to finish this series off with another victory. Last night's victory really capped off. I don't want to say capped off. Probably not the right word, but emphasized by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hitting his 100th career home run at just the age of 23 years old. Um, He and Bo Bichette have been you know, criticized at different points this season and at times fairly, I think, um, for up and down parts of their seasons. The expectations for both of these gentlemen, extremely high. But when you see them at their best and potentially having them both be, 
you know, hot at the plate mid to late September could be really good news for the Toronto Blue Jays. That's what the Jays are hoping for and hoping that that trend continues as early as this afternoon. One guy that knows these players well, uh, it's former Jays manager uh, John Gibbons. He also joined Matt and Danny on the big show in the morning today and talked uh, a little bit about Vladdy and how special it is for him to hit uh, 100 career home runs. And then Danny sort of, you know, dives into the, the Bo Bichette conversation and how good it would be for John Schneider to see both of these guys red hot at the plate at the same time. Yeah, you know, he, he is a special kid to do that, do that so fast. You know, no, no telling how many he might hit, but, um, you know, he stay, if he stays healthy, he's going to go, he'll go down in the baseball books. He's a, is you know, one of the all time great players. It should be, you know, and I keep, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I hear things and read things, um, you know, people say, well, he's struggling. What's wrong with Vladdy? This and that. And he's hitting too many ground balls. And I, okay, whatever. You know, he, he's a kind of guy, you know, I, that I, he, you don't have to worry about him one bit. It's, mm-hmm. it's all going to come together. But he's, but he's a human being too. He's uh, he's not going to hit a home run every time or get a hit every time. But he's got a pretty good idea of what he's doing, and he's just a reminder how tough the game is sometimes. You mentioned people talking about him struggling. I mean, it does seem like he's definitely ran in the corner now, as expected. But I mean, the possibility of him getting going at the same time as Bo, I don't think we've seen that all season, have we? No, not really. That, that and they're they're the two. Uh, cornerstone guys i mean the team's really in the future is built around those guys you know it's funny you say that because you know i was hearing the same thing uh i got on the social media thing right a couple weeks ago and all i heard about was bow this bow that he's not doing this defense stinks you know he's not he can't hit and then all of a sudden he hit like five or six home runs in two weeks but it was like they go through those phases especially when they're young young guys and, and they're both very young we forget that sometimes and um you know, it's uh, there, there are two guys you're going to be able to build around for a long, long time on that team. Uh, so you might as well enjoy them. But, you, you know, the, the thing about baseball, there's a lot of ups and downs, you know, and uh, especially when they're that age and they're still learning. But, heck, I, I see where Bo's closing in on a, 100 RBIs. How many shortstops in Major League Baseball ever do that anyway? He did the same thing last year. Uh, you know, you can get a little bit spoiled. Yeah, uh, good point there. That's uh, John Gibbons, the former Blue Jays manager, uh, who joined the guys in the morning show a little bit earlier today. You can get that full conversation uh, wherever you get your podcasts or at sportsnet.ca slash 960. And yeah, I think sometimes we forget how lucky we are to have guys like Vladdy and Bo on this Jays team at the same time. And um, here's a, a chance for them to succeed together. And if they can both you know, be consistent threats at the plate at the same time, this Jays team has a, another level of offense, I think, that they can reach. And you see John Schneider trying to take advantage of that with today's lineup. George Springer set to lead things off. He'll be DHing today, but batting second is Vladdy. Batting third is Bo Bichette. And that tells you just how far he's really come in the last month. The conversation really since John Schneider took over as manager for this team was what is he going to do with Bo Bichette? In this Jays lineup, he's moved him all over. He's had him as low as seventh in the lineup some nights, trying to find that sweet spot for him in the lineup. If he's batting like he is right now, yeah, third, you know, the third ba- uh, third batting spot in the order is not a bad spot for him. Uh, then you followed up Matt Chapman's batting third, Teoscar Hernandez, Santiago Espinal, Whit Merrifield's playing left. Uh, young Jays prospect catcher Gabriel Moreno gets the start behind the mound tonight, or behind the 
plate tonight, excuse me. He'll catch for Kevin Gosman. Jackie Bradley Jr. plays center field while George Springer DHs. So going to be a good one. We're about 10 minutes away uh, from first pitch. We'll take you out to Toronto uh, in just moments here. But wanted to uh, bring this piece of news uh, to you. Uh, Michael Russo, who covers the Minnesota Wild uh, and the NHL for The Athletic, uh, part of the uh, NHL's uh, media tour in Vegas today. Uh, different players from different organizations chatting it up with the media. Uh, one guy that's chatted to the media this morning has been uh, Nathan McKinnon. Uh, and some positive news for Avs fans heading into this season. McKinnon says his contract extensions are close and are going to be done soon. Also, not going to be single digits. He hopes it's done by opening night because he'd prefer not to have contract talks done during the season. Uh, he joked to Michael Russo and other media uh, the label of being the most underpaid player in the NHL is not one uh, that he likes very much. His agent, uh, Pat Brisson, backing up what McKinnon said, uh, saying that they're having more frequent talks with the Avs uh, and they want it to be done before the opener as well. Uh, a couple of people asked uh, Brisson, if uh, McKinnon might become the new highest-paid player in the NHL. Apparently, with a smile, Pat Brisson just says, we'll see. I would uh, probably bet it's a it's a pretty safe one to say that Nathan McKinnon's contract uh, will make him the next highest-paid player in the NHL, uh, whether it gets done before opening night. Uh, we'll see, but it certainly sounds as though that's the direction we're set to go in. Uh, that's going to do it for a quick edition of Sportsnet today. This afternoon, thanks to Adnan Verk uh, for hopping on with us, as he always does on a Thursday. A uh, bit of a different schedule today, but we wanted to make sure with the Jays in this playoff race that we got you full coverage of today's game. It's the Jays and the Rays. It's coming up next here on Sportsnet 960. Shane McClanahan versus Kevin Gosman. Roger Center. Ben Wagner has the call around the corner. We've got Jays baseball coming up. Stay tuned. After the Jays game, Pat Steinberg has Flames talk when uh, the Blue Jays and the Rays. And uh, that'll do it for me. Thanks to our producer, Azam, this afternoon. We'll catch you later. This has been Sportsnet Today. You're on Sportsnet 960, the fan.